Matthew chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning. So in Matthew chapter 10, where we left off last week, where we've been kind of um, traveling through it, Jesus has been readying his disciples for this mission that he's sending them out on. And so far he's told them how to prepare and what they can expect. And so he just finished uh, telling them last week that there will be those who will acknowledge him and those who will deny him. And so in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, just to kind of bring us up to speed, this is where David left off. Jesus said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. That's a, it's a heavy statement. Uh, one of the, the biggest reasons we see that people reject Jesus is because they don't want to give up control of their own lives. Uh, they, they want a Lord, they just want it to be them, right? That's, that's the problem. And I've talked to people like this where I've, I've just said, you just don't want a Lord. You don't want somebody you have to answer to. And they'll, they'll admit, yeah, that's, that's the case. I don't want somebody interfering with what I want to do. And that's more important to me than having Jesus. Another reason that people deny him is because they've, they've counted the cost. They know that there's a cost involved, and when they've weighed it out, they've determined that it isn't worth the cost. Now, the ironic thing about this is we think about Jesus. If he would have done this, if he would have thought this way, uh, we'd be in big trouble because he has every reason not to want to acknowledge us or admit that he knows us. If he would have counted the cost going to the cross, based on who we are. If you think about all those things, it's like, well, I'm sure glad he didn't think that way. He has every reason to pretend that he doesn't know me because of the shame and the embarrassment that comes with that. And yet he says that I will acknowledge you before my father who is in heaven. What an amazing thing that is. Now, it's also ironic to think about the fact that that there's people now that say, I don't want to align myself with Jesus. I don't want to acknowledge him. But on that day, when they stand before God, you know who they're going to want to be their best friend ever at that point? They're going to want Jesus to say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I acknowledge him. I just want to point out that if it's important to you then, it ought to be important to you now. Letting others know that we belong to Jesus has not been extremely costly for most of us uh, prior. You know, in our country, it hasn't been super costly, but I don't know if you're paying attention, but all, all of that seems to be rapidly changing. And so it's not a coincidence that, that a lot of people who, you know, used to maybe come to church or, or call themselves Christians are walking away. Uh, and I don't know what all that means exactly. There's a, there's a big popular word right now that's called deconstructing. They're deconstructing their faith. And um, it's a little alarming. Some of it, I think, has to do with just being embarrassed by what the American church has become, because there are some things about you know, everything that comes under the, the banner of Christianity, some of it is, is not, you know, something any of us want to align ourselves with. Some of it has to do with being embarrassed to follow the teachings of God's word. And so Jesus in this passage that we're going to look at today is really going to be talking to us about counting the cost, considering it and, and weighing it out. And so in verse 34 of Matthew 10, he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Pretty heavy passage. He starts out by kind of answering the obvious question that the disciples probably have been wondering since he's, you know, he sent them out on this mission and he started to tell them about all the persecution that they were going to face. I'm going to send you guys out, but it's going to be tough. It's not going to go well. It's going to be difficult. Now in their mind, they're thinking, well, wait a second, you're the promised Messiah. Why are things going to be hard? Because their understanding was that when Messiah came, he would establish his kingdom, that he would reign and that there would be peace on earth. And everything he's been telling them up to this point doesn't sound like that at all. And some of you know exactly what that's like, because when you came to Christ, you were told, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Your life will be sunshine and roses all the time. And you thought, well, sure, I want that. You know, I would say that that's not what the Bible describes a Christian to be like. The Bible tells us things will be hard for us, that that we will have to suffer at times. And I think this is what they were struggling with especially when they hear Jesus say, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. It's like, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? This sounds, I mean, you'll have to, most of you would admit that sounds wrong. You know, Jesus, um, I heard somebody one time say this and it stuck with me. I think I might have been Piper, but I don't want to accuse him if it's not right. But he said, take whatever warm, fuzzy notions you have about Jesus and read your New Testament and they'll go away. <laughs> and I remember thinking, it's not quite that bad, but it's, you know, he says some things sometimes that are like, did he really say that? What does he mean here? This sounds harsh. Did Jesus come to divide people? Did he come to stir things up? Did he come to, to create some kind of chaos? I think we've all known people who are like that. I don't know if you've, you've ever run into people that just seem to enjoy, like they, they walk in a room, they see a beehive, and they, they walk up, just whack it with a stick, and then step back to, to watch the chaos that ensues. We used to know a guy like this, and it was pretty obvious. Um, he derived a great deal of pleasure from doing this very thing. And I remember when he... Uh, David and Carrie were fairly new believers. It was before I knew them, and they were going to a church in Bend. And after the church service, this guy comes up, sits next to David, and says, hey, God loved Jacob, and he hated Esau. What do you think about that? (laughs) That's messed up. What good is going to come from doing that? It's like just walking up and poking somebody with a stick. This is how this guy was. You're literally just asking for trouble when you do things like that. This is not what Jesus is doing here. It's not what Jesus is like at all. It's not what he means by, I came to bring a sword. And we know from other passages that Jesus is actually called the Prince of Peace. We're told that he came to bring peace. So so what's going on here? We need to put this in its proper context or we'll miss the point completely. The peace that Jesus did come to bring, as the Prince of Peace, is a vertical peace between sinful man and a holy God. Now, in doing that, though, in bringing this peace, in coming to fix that hostility that exists here, he's going to disrupt the horizontal peace of earthly relationships. That's, that's just what's going to happen. And that's what he's describing in this passage. Now, Jesus d- did not come to bring this kind of peace on earth during his first coming. His, his first coming inevitably, inevitably will bring strife, but it's a necessary strife. It's a temporary strife as well. It has, a, it has an end goal in mind, an expiration date, and an eternal goal. We will see peace on earth someday when he comes to establish his eternal kingdom. This is something that I don't know if you look forward to it, a day when all hostility will cease. 
And this is what his disciples were hoping for. And it's, it's what I hope for and long for every day. When you look at how divided we become, even as a nation, and, and how, how much hostility there is all the time around us, people are just constantly at odds over all kinds of things. Um, it, it, it's sickening, and, it, and, it, and it, it really just, it's, it's weighty. One day, all of that will be over and done with. It will all be fixed, and peace will reign because Jesus will reign. And I long for that day. Those who experience vertical peace with God now will one day experience horizontal peace with everything and everyone, right? But not everybody is going to receive Jesus as their Lord. Not everybody is going to put their trust in his sacrifice for them on the cross. And, and that means that they will never experience this peace that we're talking about. They will actually experience the very opposite of this peace. So this is, this is a big deal. Humanity will be divided based on what they do with Jesus. And this is what he's talking about when he says, I came to bring a sword. He's talking more about a, the sword. It's a choice, not, not necessarily a judgment. A judgment will come one day based on that choice. Don't misunderstand. But right now, what he's talking about is what are you going to do with me right now? We've all seen how polarizing this can be. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and you have friends or family and people you know, you know, you know what this is like. Jesus uses the example of families in this passage because it's the closest knit fabric we have. And, and, he, and he uses it to show the extent of how real and how devastating it will be. In verse 35, he uses these examples of relationships that we care the most about. A son wanting the approval of his dad a daughter wanting the acceptance and love from her mother, a daughter-in-law coming into a family and, and hoping that she can somehow earn the, the, the love and favor and trust of her mother-in-law. These are all examples of relationships that we, we hope we get right. We hope that, that they work. But Jesus says in verse 35, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And Jesus knew exactly what this was like, didn't he? Because in his own household, he experienced this, this division. He knows how hard it is to have a, a line like this drawn between you and your family. Now, we know that this division can manifest itself in a variety of ways. If you're a Christian and you have non-Christian family and friends, uh, we, our core beliefs are different. The, the rules that we live by are different. The way we raise our children is different. The things we allow and don't allow, all those things create this kind of angst. And then there's the big things, the big social issues that really create friction. Stuff like, you know, what do we do with things like gender, abortion, homosexuality, drugs and alcohol, critical race theory, gun control, immigration. You guys are almost getting uncomfortable in your seats as I'm talking about these things, right? Racial equality, vaccines and masks. And it's like, oh my goodness, Lord Jesus, come please, right? All of these things, you know, this is why at family gatherings, what are the two rules? We don't talk about religion or politics. This is why, because it creates this division. It creates this animosity. Generally speaking, it, it makes somebody feel judged inferior, less than, unaccepted. That kind of stuff's not supposed to exist in a family. Family's supposed to be the safest place in the world where you're loved and accepted. And these things destroy all of that. Now, I can remember my family when I became a Christian having a really hard time with the decision I'd made. They didn't have any idea what it meant or what to do with it exactly. Um, 
they knew something had changed, but they weren't sure what it meant. And I know many of you have experienced the same thing. It comes up a lot in our sharing time and in the things that we pray for for each other. Uh, many of you have been cut off. You know, they don't answer the phone call. They don't, they don't want to invite you to family gatherings, things like that. Now, I haven't had to experience that. Uh, they don't always understand me, but they've, they've always loved and accepted me. But, but for many Christians, that's just not the case. Back in verse 21, Jesus gives a rather extreme picture of how bad this can get when he says, brother will deliver brother over to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake. I, you know, as American Christians, we haven't had to really deal with this. Most of us haven't had to go to this extreme, but there are Christians right now, brothers and sisters all over the world that are going through this very thing and Christians throughout history that have gone through this very thing. Their families hate them, flesh and blood, want them dead. I mean, this isn't about like not getting invited over to Thanksgiving. This is like, you're dead to us. There's no inheritance. There's no acceptance. This, this is like, can you imagine how hard that would be? The, the people you love the most and you want in your life the most want nothing to do with you. you. Can you imagine the pressure that would put on somebody? It makes you really consider the cost of following Jesus. And for the first time ever in our country, this is a pressure that's starting to feel more and more real to us. As people look to find answers to why we're so divided and, and, and as to who it is that's rocking the boat, who's responsible for this? Who's not willing to go along with the majority? Where is all this opposition coming from? As they identify followers of Christ as the reason for that, guess where they're going to point their aggression? When this happens, and I believe it will happen, we all have to ask the question, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Or will I deny him before men to keep the peace or maybe to save my own skin? And this is exactly what he's getting at in verse 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. By the way, just as a side note, if Jesus isn't God, that is a messed up thing to say. Okay, can you imagine just if I said that right now? If you don't love your, your you know, me more than your family, you know, you have, you're not worthy of me. You guys, no, no human being should be able to say that. That's disgusting. But God can say that. And Jesus is God. That's why what he's saying is actually completely right. Now, the funny thing is that, that we hear something like this, like, you know, you, you can't love these people more than me or you're not worthy of me. And it, and it makes us kind of go, oh, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. It feels weird. But we even have shirts and stuff. Go to a rodeo and look at the hats and the shirts. It's going to say something like God, family, country, right? Some of you guys probably have some of that stuff. We, we say that. Do we mean it? Is it just a nice little platitude that we throw out there or do we mean it? We put God at the top of a list like that, but, but is, he, is he really at the top of the list? Obviously, Jesus is not saying, don't love your family or don't honor your parents. The Bible is replete with that. I mean, he says it everywhere. He, of course, we're supposed to love our family. Of course, we're supposed to honor our parents. He's simply asking the question, who is at the top of your list? That's it. When it comes down to a choice between having them or having Jesus, what will you choose? Will you deny Jesus? 
or deny family and friends? What's more important to you? And I remember, I know many of you have had to go through things like this. And I, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 19 years old. I'm pretty sure I still had a mullet and it was in 1986. Right, just, to, just to give you a picture, just to help amuse you. I'm just kidding. That's funny. <laughs> it's quite the picture. Anyway, I had two friends that uh, I became a Christian. They did not. We hung out. We did everything together. We were together all the time. And I remember just having this, not this final kind of understanding of, I can't hang out with them anymore. Um, and I had to have this conversation with them. It was one of the hardest things I've had to do, but I had to say, guys, look, I'm a Christian now. I'm a follower of Christ. And what you guys are doing and what you're talking about and the things that you're trying to, to get me to do, I can't do that anymore. I'm not, it's not who I am anymore. And I had to draw a line that was really hard for me to draw and tell them, I love you guys. You're still my friends. I'll still do, you know, I'm there for you if you need me, but I can't live like this. It's not who I am anymore. It was so hard to do. Um, one of the amazing things is a couple weeks later, doesn't always happen this way. I wish it did. They called me and said, we want to hear more about Jesus. And they both prayed to receive Jesus. And, and the one guy still to this day, we we email back and forth and we, we send each other verses and he's still walking with the Lord and still following the Lord. And, and so it's an amazing thing that the, the way it worked out, but it doesn't always work out that way. It didn't matter. I had to draw that line. I had to do it. It was the right thing. You know, Jesus is using the example of family to represent the people that we love the most in this world and, 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 and what's most important to us. But there's also more things to consider because it's not just the, the people we love, it's also the stuff we love. And that's why he talks about this idea of taking up your cross. Because this includes things like money and comfort and jobs and success and all the other attachments of the world that you can think of. All the things that, that you want to hold so close and not let go of that you love in this world. He's talking about all of those things as well. And I remember going through this as well. Again, 19, I, I was uh, confronted with the gospel and I needed to make a decision. I was counting the cost. And I remember one night I went home. I was still living with my parents at that time. Don't judge me. Uh, you know, I, I, I walked into the garage that night. And it was dark and I was kind of standing inside the, the garage and I was praying because I'd just been confronted with all these things. And I, I thought, man, I really want Jesus. I really want this, but I also really want I'm 19, that was the legal drinking age in Idaho. It's like, I just, I just got legal. I mean, literally a month ago, I can legally drink because that was stopping me from drinking before that. Sorry. It wasn't, but, but I remember bargaining with Jesus. That was the point. I remember, you know, having this conversation with him. Like, let's, what, do, what do you think about like a 70-30 split here, Lord? I'll, I'll hold on to these few things over here that are really important to me, but I'll give you the rest. You know, that was my, that was my uh, attempt and I remember just, I started weeping. <laughs> Hard to imagine me weeping, I know. But, but I started weeping because I knew that's not what he wanted. He wanted all of me. He wanted me to say, no, Lord, I'm all in. Not a 70-30 split. He wanted 100% of me. And I knew that. And I went in that night into the house, not saved. And uh, it was the next night that I actually became a Christian. But I, I remember, you know, Jesus says this in Luke 14, 33, a parallel passage Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be, be my disciple. Wow, that's heavy. All that they have. Are you willing to die to everything and everyone to gain Jesus? The way you answer that question matters more than anything else because according to what he says here, it determines your eternity. 
And I want to make sure I'm clear here because when you're up here preaching, it's very easy to be misunderstood. This doesn't mean that you never struggle with loving the things of the world or putting people in the wrong priority. You know, I do that every day. I'm talking about this moment in time where you, you just stop and say, is Jesus worth it? Am I willing to, to be all in for him? Not that you won't ever struggle with that decision, because you will as far as the, the way we prioritize things. But in the big decision, grand scheme kind of a way, when you're faced with having the choice of having Jesus or having the world, which one do you want more? Which one will you deny? Which one will you die to? And that's what he means by taking up your cross. You know, the cross was an instrument of death. We, we would now wear it as a piece of jewelry and it's shiny and pretty, and, but this is an ugly, ugly thing. It, it's what killed Jesus. So taking up your cross means dying to self, giving your life to Jesus. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in his, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. <laughs> it's like, you know, you'd say, well, you should put that on a shirt. We actually have. We, we have it on one of our shirts, come and die. It sounds so counterintuitive. It sounds like, well, why would anybody do that? It sounds bleak until you understand what is gained from it. And this is what he says in verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the crazy thing is, it, it, it's absolutely true. People are trying to find their lives in so many ways. Think about all the, you know, the money that's spent, the journeys that are gone on, the gurus and therapists, and they, they visit all these people trying to find their lives and they come up short. Jesus says, I am the life. I am the bread that will cause you to not be hungry anymore. I am the living water that will cause you not to thirst anymore. And he's right. Everything else I've tried, and I tried it all, left me hungry and parched. Christ is the only one who left me satisfied. And if you think about it, as the creator, that's how he's made it to be. Why would the creator create something that you could find satisfaction in apart from him? He wouldn't. So, so you can try, you can give it your best you know, shot, but you're going to come up short. And eventually, I hope you get to that point where you've waited out and you say, I'm done trying, I want you. The rest of it can go. Jared Wilson, a great quote I saw, he said, for many of us, Jesus won't be our absolute treasure until we're all out of other options. And I remember getting to that point. I got nothing else. I've tried it all. Nothing's working. I, I need him. And I've never regretted that. And, and so taking up my cross and dying to self was the greatest thing I ever did because I found a life that I'd always wanted. And so I'm, you know, I can say with, and it's not me, it's him, but I'm willing to die for that. I'm willing to die for that faith. I'm willing to suffer humiliation. I'm not, I don't want, I'm not signing up. It's not like, Lord, but I'm willing to. Persecution, even death, if it comes to that. And th those are all the things that a cross carrier has to face. That's why he wants us to count the cost. Jesus went through all of those things for us. He's more important than anything else. And one of the amazing things I've discovered, and it's kind of hard to explain, but all of the things in the world that I, that I was saying I don't want anymore, somehow now that I'm a Christian and I'm born again and I have a right relationship with God, those things have been redeemed in a way that now I can have a proper relationship with them. That's not where my happiness terminates or ends, but now I can enjoy them to the glory of God. And so there's so many things like that, whether it's a job that you, where you'd find your identity or sex or food, or you can put a hundred things into that category. Now they're not, they're not objects of worship. They're, they're not objects of, 
They're not idols. God is everything I, I need and want, and so now these things I can actually enjoy. It, it's really strange, but that's the way it works. So, we all know how real the division is that Jesus is speaking about. We know how important it is for us to be on the right side of that dividing line. But what do we do about the people that are still on the other side of that line? Uh, how do we relate to them? Because this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. How do we navigate this reality, especially with family and friends? I was talking to a family member a few weeks ago um, who isn't a Christian. And, and I just kind of asked about, do you, do you feel this invisible wall that exists between us, and how do you feel about it? Because it's easier to ignore it, right? It's easier just to pretend it's not there. But she said, yeah, I, I do. I feel it. I know it's there. I, I know you love me. I know you're proud of me. I know you'd do anything for me. But at the end of the day, I know which side of the line you're on and which side of the line I'm on. And, and they know that I believe that if they don't repent and trust in Jesus, that they will perish. They know I believe that. You don't think that creates some tension? You know, Jesus came to bring a sword. That feels a lot like a sword. This is what he's talking about. It's not a small thing. It's not surprising that it separates and divides. But this is what I want you to, to get, like a big idea from this. Understand that this division, this sword, is a kindness from God. Do you see that? Do you see that this is actually a grace from God, that it exists? It's very helpful for us to see this distinction, to acknowledge it, to know it's there. I am so grateful that God made this clear to me. At some point in my life, he let me know because I thought I was doing fine. I was raised in, you know, I'll just say it, I was raised Roman Catholic, and my understanding was as long as I didn't do any of the really big sins, I was going to be okay. And at some point, God in his mercy said, hey, Here's a sword with a line. And Brent, you're on the other side of that line. You're not my friend. You're my enemy. I am so grateful that, that he was kind to me to show me that because I wouldn't have done anything otherwise. And we've been living for a long time now in a country where it's been extremely hard to recognize who's who. Hard for them and hard for us. You know, there was a time when I was growing up. I have water here. I'm going to use it. We bring it up here for a reason. <sighs> Sorry. Do that. Gather myself. Okay. There was a time in our country, uh, I remember this growing up, um, it was a Christian nation. We, we, we kind of called it that. And, and I understand why we called it that. I think stats said that it was 80% of the people claimed to be Christians. And I remember growing up, basically everybody was a Christian. You just said, you know, if you believed in God or something to that effect, you were a Christian. We were brothers and sisters. We are family. You know, it was that kind of thing. That's how, that's how it felt. Um, when I hear those stats and those polls, I remember always being, I'm a skeptic anyway, but I remember thinking 80% or 80% of the people that I meet like this, are they, are they taking up their cross, dying to self and finding their life in Christ? No, not even close, which tells me that about 70% of these people are pretty confused about which side of the line they're actually on. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm just practically speaking, it's a pretty low number. And that number, by the way, it's just dropping. Consider, you know, all the stats, all the polls are saying, you know, 80%, 76. It's like, you know, it's, it's, going, it's going down fast, right? We're all seeing it. So one of the things I've learned over the years is that it's good to, to understand this division, to understand that it's there. 
because I do this thing where I often assume I really want other people to be Christians, so I project that onto them. If I, if, if I sneeze and they say, God bless you, I think, oh, they, they're, they're, they're Christians like me. I, th- I want them to be so much that I find reasons for that. The problem with that is that if you do that, if you treat people that, are, that, are, that aren't Christians like they are Christians, you reinforce that false belief in them, that they're okay. okay? Or you get frustrated with them because of the lack of fruit, the lack of evidence in their life. You know, you claim to be a Christian, but you don't seem to have any fruit or evidence of that. You seem to be fine with your sin. You're, there's no brokenness over anything. And you get to that point where you're saying, why aren't you acting like a Christian? And the answer might be, because they're not a Christian, because they're not born again. And again, this isn't, I'm not saying that it's our job to figure out who is and who isn't a Christian, but just try to make sure that you understand that there, there is a line and, and, it, and it matters which side people are on. It's helpful to recognize this because if we've been holding out hope for somebody who's not a Christian, it will change the way we interact with them. It will change the way we pray for them. It will change the grace maybe that we give to them. I'm a lot of times easier on a non-Christian than I am a Christian because a Christian is wearing a uniform. They've said, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. So I have a different expectation for them than I do for a non-Christian. So the, the division is a kindness from God, but in this we also see, so we see the sword is necessary, but we also need to know that love is necessary. This is really important. This is where I see many Christians getting it wrong. There are two big errors or two big extremes that I see from Christians today when it comes to this idea of Jesus bringing a sword. You've got one group that is way too excited about it and one group that is way too uncomfortable with it, okay? One group is all about truth but lacks love and the other group is all about love but lacks truth. The group that gets uncomfortable doesn't like division, doesn't like the idea of Jesus with a sword at all. Just sort of, Jesus, put that thing away. Let's not, let's not go there, please. They suffer from that, uh, can't we all just get along syndrome. That, and some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know that there's a lot of people that, that fit into this camp. They want unity at all costs. But the problem is this, unity without truth is very shallow. It's not real unity at all. And it ignores the problem of sin and the destruction of sin, and the consequence of sin. People who want unity at all costs will be forced to go along, or they'll be ostracized, canceled, mocked, persecuted, all of those things. And so if, if you're one of these people, that's going to be this pressure that you have to deal with. We, what we're going to see because of that is a lot of people to compromise, to go along with whatever, you know, there's this idea of the morality of the majority, and you're going to be for, and I'm seeing this in the church, and I'm seeing this in Christians right now, where they're saying, well, I'm going to change the way I do things because I won't look so bad to the world. Right? Dan Doriani is a guy who, I, he put a commentary together on Matthew, and he, and he points this out, and I think it's really good, the big problem with this way of thinking. Have you noticed that morality, what's right and what's wrong, changes rapidly? <laughs> it's dizzying sometimes. It's literally like being on a roller coaster. It goes so fast and changes so much that, that it's hard to keep up with. And he uses this example, and I'm not trying to make a commentary on either of these things. I'm just using this as an example because it's true. Uh, I can remember a time growing up where public smoking was considered just a lifestyle choice, normal. Homosexuality was considered an abomination. That's the world I grew up in. And at some point in time, this happened. 
I don't know how it happened. I don't know why it happened. But now smoking is an abomination and homosexuality is a lifestyle choice. How does that work? And there's a dozen other examples just like this, right? So the accepted standard to decide what's right and wrong, it's based on whatever the majority determines. That's a terrible standard. (laughs) If that's your standard for morality, you need a better standard. And and the, the good news is, hey, look, we have one. God gave us one. And the beautiful thing about his word is it doesn't change with the times. It's the same yesterday, today, and it will be the same tomorrow. And the really cool thing about this is if God says something in his word, it's true. And we, we can accept it without apology. We, we, we can just say, that's God's word. I'm good with it. Of course, we should be kindful or kindful. That's a good word. It's when you take kind and respect, kind and respectful to, to somebody that we're talking to about these things that might not see it that way. You know, don't, don't be a jerk about it. But if God calls something wrong, we can agree with it. When we do that, we need to be prepared for the consequences that will come because it will cause division. This is that sword. Again, the, the word of God is actually called a sword, a double-edged sword that will divide. So be prepared for that. You're going to be told you're narrow-minded that you're bigoted, that you're on the wrong side of history, that this book is antiquated and that's not for today and, and leave it behind. You're going to be told all those things. Be ready for that. That's part of the, just the cost of following Jesus that we talked about. But, but some of this is a result of following God's word and some of it is the result of us being jerks. Okay, there's a difference between these things. We, it, I don't know if that makes sense, but this, this brings me to the other group, the people that are way too excited about this sword idea. It's like, finally, you know, thank you, Jesus, for bringing the sword. Get them. You know, they deserve judgment. Bring it. It's like, do you remember the Sons of Thunder? It's like, Lord, do you want me to call down fire from heaven on these people? This is a real thing in the church. I'm really glad God didn't give me the ability to call down fire from heaven on people because I would do it driving a lot. Just be like, (laughs) you know, I don't have it. Thank you, Lord. But, but this is the idea, you know, it, it's these people standing out there saying, we're the moral ones. We're the righteous ones. We're the high ground people. And they make the divisions between the righteous and the unrighteous, the goodies and the baddies, all the, these kinds of distinction. But they've forgotten one very important detail. They leave this part out. The difference between us and them is that we're forgiven sinners. They are unforgiven sinners. You don't have any righteousness of your own. Jesus gave you his. Do you know that? If you have righteousness right now that's pleasing to God, it's not your own. It was given to you by Jesus. You have no moral high ground. You have no high horse to look down on people from. He's the righteous one. We're the reason he was nailed to the cross. There's that verse, and I think it's Titus, where they give this gnarly list of sins. And it's just like the worst of the worst sins. And you're just going, oh, yuck, gross. Those people are the worst. And then it says, but such were some of you. And I hear that and I'm reminded again. Oh, yeah, that's who I am. That's who he is. That's what he's done for me. And then rather than call down fire from people or call down fire upon people, I have grace. I have compassion. I remember that I was in that boat and apart from the grace of God, I'd still be in that boat and it changes everything. So the sword is necessary, but love is also necessary. We can't avoid the division 
that's going to come that Jesus is talking about. We can't, uh, we can't avoid the offense of the gospel. When you tell somebody they're on the other side of that line and that they need Jesus, it's going to offend them. But we don't have to add to that offense. <laughs> Jesus brought a sword. We're like, hey, I got a boot knife and a dagger and some throwing stars. Do you want some help? No. <laughs> Let the sword be enough. Sorry, I'm from the 80s and throwing stars were pretty cool back then. You don't get a chance to bring them into a sermon very often, so. Yeah, thanks. The cross will create a natural wall. We don't, we don't have to, to add more obstacles. You know, and, I, and I think Christians need to really think about this. Right now, we want, we want people to walk in and, and get to the door, right? We want them to get to Jesus, but what obstacles are we, you know, it's, it's, it's like we're putting dressers and chairs and pianos against the door so they can't get to them by the things that we're, we're, we're saying and doing. And sometimes, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to, it's like, you almost want to call things out here. Examine your hearts and look at what's in your life and think about what are the obstacles that I have placed between people and Jesus that don't matter. Not, not the word of God. I'm not talking about things that the word of God says. I'm talking about personal preferences, personal convictions, all of these other things. Have we created any obstacles that are barriers from people getting to Jesus? And if we have, we, we need to jettison those things. We need to get them out of the way. The big question that we need to consider is how can we make the gospel as attractive to people as possible? Knowing it's an offensive message, we can't improve upon the message, don't misunderstand, but how can we make it as attractive as possible? And I believe the answer is through Christ-like conduct. So Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by, by the way you own them on your social media feed with your intellect and your wit and your arguments. No, they will know you're my disciples by the way you love. And one of the things I love about this church is the way you love each other, the way you care for each other. Even in the testimony time today, things that were being said about uh, the love that is seen here, and not only here, but the love that spills out, out of these walls into the community. We just went to the uh, sandwich place the other day, and, and a teacher came up to us and said, thank you guys so much for what you're doing, bringing meals to us and praying for us. He was a believer, trapped in a, you know, that whole world. And, and again, to hear that was such a cool thing. That's gonna, that testimony of that love that Jesus is alive, that he's real, that he's in our midst is so powerful, so huge. So ask yourself the question, when my family members who are currently rejecting Jesus, who are on the other side of that line, when they watch my conduct, what do they see? Do they see somebody who is always angry and complaining about everything and everyone? Do they see somebody who's full of hate and anger about those, the, you know, ugh, the unrighteous over there? I hate sin, don't misunderstand me. But they should see somebody who's full of joy, full of life, full of love, full of grace because they're full of Jesus. Do they see somebody who's selfless, who takes up their cross daily and has forsaken everything else to follow the one who will give us true life? You know, when, when somebody, one of the things that I talked about this family member, the one thing that they say over and over again is, I know your faith is real. I know you believe with all your heart what you believe. That's powerful. Our message become more, it becomes more valuable when this is the case. So, Bottom line is this, we're, we're watching the world kind of go into heck in a handbasket around us. It can be very discouraging to see this dividing line and see it, it kind of widening and seeing that we're getting further and further away from maybe, you know, some of the things that, that we like in life. But at the end of the day, 
hopefully people see us walking around still with a peace, still with a joy, still with a love, wondering where, where does that come from? And we'll get the opportunity to tell them it comes from knowing Christ. We have nothing to be grumpy about. If you ever start getting grumpy about stuff, just take that big step back and think about what could have been if it wasn't for the grace of God. Right? So I saw this quote, and, and it, I'm going to end with this. It's a guy from Derwin Gray, Dr. Derwin L. Gray. I don't know him, but this, this quote just hit me. Because we think right now that, especially you know, with everything that's going on in our country, that you know, there's no hope. And I know a lot of people wouldn't say that, but, but it seems like we're feeling that way. And he just reminded me of the early church, how it was for them, and, and what they ended up doing. So just listen to this. It's amazing. The early church, a mixture of Jews, Gentiles, had no political power. Rome ruled. There was no Christian Supreme Court. They had no cultural power. They were persecuted by both Jews and Gentiles. They had no economic power, but they had love and the power of Jesus. And what did the early church do? They turned the stinking world upside down through the gospel. That's pretty encouraging to think about because we have that. We have that. Amen? Father, thank you so much for passages like this that are, that are so difficult and yet so rewarding to, to look at and to think through. Thank you, Father, that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Thank you that we get a part in, in being on this rescue mission with other believers, Lord. Uh, bless the work that goes on in, in this location and in Lapine. Give us uh, more opportunity, more desire, more compassion, more love. And Lord, help us to be faithful to who you are. <laughs> Thank you that we have found life in you and that it's real life, and that there's nothing that compares to it. Thank you for being gracious to sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen.